0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Love Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If
1: you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
0: well, there's nothing you can not on the
1: Savage I got an email today right before we started to record the podcast and I'm just going to read it. Hey, Dan, I love your show, your rants, your energy, your opinion. One tiny thing that irks me. Every time you mention your husband, Terry, you switch tone and pronounce it my husband in a way that communicates that you are putting it between quotation marks. This broadcast that you treat this somehow differently than just plain being married, that it is somehow dot, 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 pretend. I think one of the challenges we all face is normalizing same-sex marriage and it would be a good idea to refer to Terry as my husband, period, no decorations, just matter of fact. It is a nuance but I think significant one. All the best, Etan. Well, yeah, I do call him, you know, Terry, my husband. I've been saying that for a very long time. In all honesty, I am slightly putting it in italics or I was. I really think that I was. For a long time, I, I, I was doing it with that sort of I can't believe I get to call him my husband. I don't really feel like he's my husband. I'm not even sure what my husband is supposed to mean for us as gay men. If you read my book, The Commitment, which – pause now to think about how fast things have changed and how rapidly things have changed. When I came out to my mom when I was 18, I wasn't just – burdening her with mental images that it took her years to expunge. Mom, I'm gay. And she could just see dicks flying into every hole of mine. I was telling my mother that I would never marry. That was part of what coming out as gay meant. You would never get married. Marriage was something that straight people did. There were a lot of lesbian feminists who regarded the inability to be married or to marry as one of the great things about lesbianism – Was that you got to – when Terry and I were thinking about marrying or adopting, we had older gay and lesbian friends who were like, you guys are crazy. Marriage and kids were the trap that we all had to avoid. And so we had complicated, nuanced feelings about marriage. Like, was it for us? My book, The Commitment, is all about Terry and I wrestling with this thing, marriage. And whether we, as a gay male couple – could be part of it or belonged in it. When we first started thinking about marriage, when marriage was legalized in Ontario uh, and then Massachusetts, and this is only 10, 12 years ago that that happened. When we first started thinking about it and us and whether we would do it, Terry was against it. When marriage came up, when my mother brought it up, Terry said, I don't want to get married because I don't want to act like straight people. And my mother looked at Terry and said, you just had a baby. There is no acting like straight people bigger than having a baby because we'd already had our our son. We'd already adopted our son when these conversations were going on. And so we were – it felt putting on this this garment that we'd never worn before and it was a little awkward and a little uncomfortable and it felt like – A brand new privilege to be able to, after we married, to look at Terry and say, my husband. And so we said it in a kind of funny, ironic way because the word was brand new in our mouth. And then an interesting thing happened. We got more comfortable. Like at first it was hard calling him my husband. It felt weird calling him my husband. But we got more comfortable with it and now I'm fine. Calling my husband all the time. And my husband is my pet name for my husband. Now I have both. I will call him my husband without saying my husband. But sometimes I call him my husband because that is my pet name alternate intonation. And so I'm going to keep calling Terry my husband because he likes it when I say it like that. I like saying it like that. It's how I feel about him. And it's not communicating any sort of I'm not worthy about marriage. He is my husband. He's also my husband. And he can be both at once. And also reaching into the mailbag, a few emails and a few tweets from people who were upset and annoyed that I used the expression and I'm going to use it here again to reference it and for the last time ever I will use it. I used the expression honest engine last week in one of my responses. That was a 50-year-old white guy brain fart and I apologize. I get that it's insensitive. I get that it's inappropriate. And if I had been thinking literally thoughtless, if I had been thinking – as those words were coming out of my mouth, I, of course, wouldn't abuse them. And I shan't again ever promise and sorry. All right. I said last week we would get a couple of experts in this week to talk about the new female Viagra just approved by the FDA. And we got them. They're on the Magnum. Alice Drager and Liz Kanner coming up on the Magnum. Coming up in the micro, your calls, my answers, tons of them. Glad you're here.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old divorced straight woman on the East Coast. I have an 11-year-old daughter, and I've been divorced from her father for seven and a half years. Here's my story and then my question. I've been out with probably 200 men in the past seven years. I've had three longer-term relationships and several flings and a few one-night stands. When I started dating after my divorce, my intention was to find a husband, but in the past few years, I've moved away from that idea, and what I really want is someone to talk to, do stuff with when my daughter's with her dad, and fuck as often as possible. The thing is that that what keeps happening to me over and over is that when I put that out there, the men don't believe me. My first priority is to my daughter because she needs me more than anyone else, but just because she should be number one doesn't mean I shouldn't get some. When I put something like this on my OKCupid and JDate profiles, basically I get offers from all kinds of scummy guys who are looking for free sex, but no one who could have a halfway decent conversation or who wanted to be my friend. Most of the men I've dated are also divorced, and I find that generally they get parenting and work-life balance, but they, they don't believe me when I say I don't need a ring on it right now. When my daughter leaves the house, I'd sure love to find a life partner, but bringing a blended family into our lives right now seems so complicated." I'm a successful professional, highly educated. I'm in great physical shape. I have a great family and lots of wonderful friends. What do you think men are thinking when I tell them what I'm looking for once we meet in person? Most of them don't even want a second date. Even the ones who kiss me goodnight or more seem to find a way to back out when when I suggest that we make plans for some time in the future. What might I try differently? I appreciate your help. The relationship I have with my vibrator is a good thing, but not as good as it could be with the right guy.
1: I think there are two stools and you're falling on the floor right in between them. There are, you know, the one stool is completely casual sex, and when you put that out there, you get nothing but responses on Jade Aid and OK Cupid from scummy guys who are just looking for sex. You yourself, however, are just looking for sex. I think the problem you're making is there's the other stool, which is relationships and commitment, and you're not necessarily seeking that right now. But when you put it out there, perhaps the way you're putting it out there to the guys that you're dating or seeing or would like to perhaps have be the FWB in your life, when you talk about it with them, I think you're communicating the other stool to just casual sex, scummy guys looking for sex. I think you're coming across in that moment, not as a, a scummy woman looking for sex. That's how you're coming across in that moment. When what you're actually looking for is, the invisible missing stool in between and you need to set that stool there so you stop falling on your ass. You want a relationship. You want a relationship. You want an ongoing sustained relationship with a guy you like and come to know where there is sex and there is not a commitment but a connection. But I think the way you're talking about it makes the guys feel disposable or commodified or something and perhaps what they're succumbing to is the slut shaming in the culture that a woman's saying that putting it out there what she wants and it's sex is scaring them off because they're scared little boys or they're interested in having a relationship and perhaps not a commitment, not yet, but they want to have sex in the context of something happening. If not moving toward marriage, moving toward a connection and you want that too. So I think you need to the shift how you talk about this. So you don't make these guys feel like they're walking, talking, biped versions of your vibrator. That you're just looking for them to rush in and provide more sensation than your vibrator can provide in the moment. That you're looking to, to get to know somebody, maybe also a single parent, who also has responsibilities and to their children, as you do. And you guys can have a connection and ongoing sex. blah di blah, blah, blah Might be a mistake to roll this all out on the first date. If you're throwing this all on the table on that first date, that seems a little hurried, desperate. Nobody likes desperate men or women. Nobody likes desperate. It also brings us back to this thing I talk about all the time, which is it looks like it comes across as poor judgment, a display of poor judgment. Something that even if that's what he wanted to, you being so sort of aggressively explicit about it out of the gate, which is usually at that first date is not when people start laying out their terms – Usually people are just sort of performing for each other a little bit, getting to know each other, establishing that they can have a conversation, that they're a fun person to spend some time with. If it – during that first date, that first hangout, you are coming across like MacArthur on the aircraft carrier in the Bay of Japan dictating terms of surrender, that could be off-putting. Not that the terms that you're laying out might be what the guy wants ultimately – But on some level, perhaps a subconscious level, he goes, oh, that she's throwing this all out there right now means she has poor judgment, poor interpersonal skills, maybe even a little bit crazy. And I'm not up for – maybe up for sex in the context of uh, no commitment and no moving toward commitment, up for friends with benefits, not up for poor judgment, not up for someone without the sense to roll these things out more slowly. So roll them out more slowly. Here's what you're going to do. Next time you go on a date, don't say any of this shit. Just let it happen. And if sex happens, great. And then see if he calls again or responds to your call and wants to hang out again. And if sex happens again, great. Just let it roll. Don't slap your terms down on the deck of the aircraft carrier yet. And then when you have been hanging out for a few weeks or a few months and you've been and the sex has been good, if there's a point, a point will come where there's a conversation about the relationship that has emerged between you two. And at that point, you can say, I'm focused on my daughter right now. The blended family thing isn't something I'm interested in. Would love to keep seeing you and hanging out with you. I think you're great. What we're doing is what I want. But they're not going to get to that point of doing the thing that you want if you're hustling them toward it in the first half hour. You're going to scare them off. You're going to spook them. So take it slow. Keep your mouth shut. Fuck them.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight male from Massachusetts. I'm recently on a sexy vacation with my lover, and we're having a lot of trouble with her vagina pain. I try, you know, every time we hook up, I try to go down on her. I try to, like, kiss her a long time, try to be real sweet to her for all the way up front. Foreplay is an issue. I think she's hot. She thinks I'm hot. Recently started using lube, but it's not really helping. She's suffering from a lot of vagina pain. And, you know, she's a trooper. She puts up with it just to, you know, just to help things go along between us. But she ends up really suffering, and it's not really a healthy, positive relationship. What can I do to make this, you know, very thin, very pretty girl uh, be able to take my somewhat bigger dick? It's getting painful. I want to make this girl come, and she's just dealing with a lot of pain. Help me, dance Savage.
1: You know what would be real sweet? It would be real sweet of you to stop trying to jam your dick into this woman who is suffering from vaginal pain. Maybe you're too big. Maybe you are too big and she needs to get herself a big set of vaginal dilators and solo alone without the pressure or the expectations that you bring to the table, masturbate uh, by herself experiencing that the, you know, the full like gamut of vaginal dilators, which is basically a set of dildos uh, in increasingly larger sizes that a woman can practice with, right? Or maybe you should prioritize non-penetrative sex. The problem is if all of the pleasure that you're providing her with cunnilingus, with lubes, with masturbation, with whatever else, is goal-oriented and the goal is your dick in her, whether it feels particularly good to her in the moment or not and you're just both going to power through – She's going to grit her teeth through the pain and you're going to take your pleasure anyway. That's just a recipe for disaster. You're going to create a negative feedback loop. She is going to begin to experience vaginal pain just in anticipation of intercourse with you. Because it always goes to this painful place and she will begin to associate you and your dick with pain and it is going to spiral down from there and it's not going to work. So, you know what you do? You take your dick off the fucking menu. You take penis and vagina off the fucking menu. You eat her pussy and you make her come. You roll around. You give her the freedom and yourself the freedom to have sex without having to have intercourse. It's the intercourse that's not working right now, right? So, mutual masturbation, oral sex without the oral being prologue to vaginal intercourse. The oral is the sex that you're going to have, period, full stop, the end. And then outer course. If you inside her is painful, how is you outside her? Like once everything's all lubed up and happy, to engage in an act of frotage where your dick is rubbing up and down between her labia but not into her vaginal canal and pressing against her clitoris, maybe that would be exciting and fun and get her off without causing her pain. And if you can then begin to create a positive feedback loop where sex with you means pleasure and sex with you doesn't always end in penis in vagina pain she won't fear sex with you and then perhaps you can begin to incorporate some penetration without the expectation that initiating penetration means you get to go for it until you come that she is not under any pressure to avoid bailing if she needs to bail if it begins to be painful you bail and you retreat to other stuff that works for you both and then you gradually incorporate maybe a little more penetration, a little more penetration. Maybe she experiments alone with her vaginal dilators. Maybe she goes and talks to her gynecologist about any other underlying medical issues she might have. But the first thing you need to do is decenter your dick. If everything you're doing with her sexually is trying to leverage her pussy into a place where you can fuck it, and if you're always in a hurry to get there, That's a recipe for vaginal pain disaster. You will never solve this problem for her because you are the problem for her if that's how you're behaving, if that's what you're doing. If I was in charge of you and your dick and her and her pussy, this is what I would do. No penetrative sex for three months. None at all. Oral, which is of course penetrative when you're talking about a blowjob. Oral and mutual masturbation and intimacy and holding each other in touch and talking and Dirty talk and erotica and whatever else, but no dick in her pussy for three months. To create a lot of positive feelings, a lot of positive vibes, to make her feel safe with you and your dick. Right now, I bet she does not feel safe with you and your dick. That, everything I've just laid out for you, do that. That would be real sweet.
4: Hi, Dan. I'm a 26 year old female, two months out from a breakup with a living boyfriend of a little over a year. In hindsight, there are red flags about his mental instability, and I know we moved too quickly. Shortly after we moved in together, he started fixating on my past relationships, calling me a slut, and breaking my thing. He isolated me from my friends, broke into my email, and kept me up all night multiple times a week. He was still expecting me to have sex with him daily through this, and my sex sort plummeted, even though I enjoyed it when we did have sex. She reacted to my rejection with anger, claiming that I didn't like him and wasn't attracted to him. He was extremely fearful that I would abandon him to the point where he was threatening suicide if I did. Since our breakup, I have blocked his phone number but continue to get multiple emails a day. One email will say he loves me and the next he'll be calling me a selfish bitch. I try not to respond, but eventually I break. I struggle with feeling like I confirmed all of his insecurities by breaking up with him. I don't know how to stop feeling guilty when I get these emails daily about how miserable he is. I still feel like I want to help him, and I'm afraid that I'm going to go back to this toxic relationship. What can I do to help me stop feeling guilty and avoid going back to this
5: relationship?
1: Block his email. You can block someone's email and never, ever respond to any of his emails ever again. Never open an email from him ever again. If he creates a new email account and emails you again, do not open that email, delete them without reading them. Stop allowing yourself to be sucked back into the guilt vortex of this. bullshit. And what do you have to feel guilty about? This man was clearly abusive, isolating you from your friends, keeping you up all night, all these accusations. You were abused by this person and you are not responsible for saving this person and and you are not magic and your pussy is not Lord's and healing waters do not flow from it. So even if you got back together with him, it's not going to fix him. He's kept you in his life by being a damaged nut, right? And so you getting back together with him, which he managed to achieve by being crazy and abusive and awful. You going back is not going to stop the crazy, abusive and awful. You, when you were there, it didn't stop the crazy, abusive, awful. You going back isn't going to fix it. He needs to. It's his shit. He needs to work on it. And if the crazy, abusive, awful game that he plays keeps you in his life, he has no incentive to work on it. He has, he's not going to see that this is not a winning strategy. If you go back, if you go back, it will get worse. If you go back, you are rewarding him. He will get it in his head that this is how he keeps you in his life. You are not helping him by going back. You are hurting him and yourself primarily and most importantly yourself. You will be hurting yourself but you will also be doing this guy no favors because eventually he has to hit relationship rock bottom and figure this fucking shit out and you going back delays that date. That glorious day when he figures out that this is not how to win girlfriends and influence lovers, this shit. Right? He is fucked up damaged person, and you need to stay the fuck away from him and you owe him nothing. I'm sure when you were together and he was berating you and accusing you of thinking of leaving and threatening to kill himself if you did leave, which look at he didn't do that, right? That idle threat, people, that is almost always an idle threat. That is hostage-taking bullshit, the asshole who says that sort of thing, taking themselves hostage, pointing the gun at themselves and threatening to harm the hostage if you leave. It's bullshit, and you shouldn't allow it to affect your choices or your behavior when someone engages in that kind of bullshit. But he threatened to kill himself if you left, and so you promised him you wouldn't leave. I bet that's what happened over and over again. You promised him you weren't going to leave. You assured him and reassured him as, you, as he kept you up all night, three nights a week like the boyfriend, not from hell, but from ISIS. And now there's probably some part of you that feels guilty about that, that you lied to him. I'm sure that's what he's saying to you in the emails. You said you would never leave and you left. You lied to me, lied to me, lied to me. And you did. But you lied under duress to someone who was abusing you. And maybe even when you said it, it wasn't a lie. Because at the time that you said you would never leave him, you had no intention of leaving him. But then you came to your fucking senses and you got the fuck out. Now stay the fuck out. He's an asshole and an abuser. And one of the crazy things that abusers do, the way they get into our heads, is they eventually get us to participate in the abuse. And by reading his emails, you are participating in his abuse. By feeling any sense of obligation to him in the wake of everything that went down, and then allowing him to get inside your head by opening those fucking emails, by responding to them, You are participating in your own abuse. You are facilitating. You are helping him. Giving him your assistance in damaging you. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Block all of his email addresses. Never open an email from him ever again. If he ever shows up anywhere, call the fucking police. Get a restraining order. If he does not leave you the fuck alone.
6: Uh, Hello, Dan. I'm a tech savvy, at Risk Youth. I'm a late 30s straight male living in a major northeast American city. Basically, my issue is that when I'm dating women who I'm crazy about, they almost always bail on me. I'm not clingy or needy. Most of the time, I see them two to three times a week. We always ostensibly have lots of fun, but I don't hide the fact that I see a future, and I'm what you might call chivalrous. I bring flowers, I go on proper dates, and so on. Now, when I'm dating women who I'm somewhat less interested in, but trying to give it a chance to see where things might go, those women are even but highly interested in me and wanting a relationship. I treat them pretty much the same in terms of respect, except I'm probably somewhat less consistent and less inclined to make interesting plans and introduce them to friends as to not give them the wrong idea about my current level of interest. So my question is as follows. Do you recommend that I refrain from showing as much interest in the women I I really uh, have grown to like over the course of a few months, as in treat them how I treat the women I'm less excited about? Those odious self-proclaimed online dating gurus recommend these kind of tactics, but I've always stayed clear of games and tried to just be myself. I want to emphasize the fact that I don't think I'm coming on strong with the ones I'm really interested in. I'm just kind of unambiguous about my interest and, you know, trying to build something that may have
1: a future. So your efforts to build something that may have a future with women that you could see yourself together with in the future are preventing you from having a future with those women, So there's something about the way you come across when you're being chivalrous and bringing flowers and fantasizing about, I don't know, your wedding and what you're going to wear to it with her and what she's going to wear that is scaring women that you might have a future with off. So knock that shit off. Doctor, doctor, it hurts when I go like this. The doctor says stop going like that. You're going in such a way that you're hurting your romantic prospects with women you might be interested in. So go differently, which is not – to say you should use PUA, pick up artist, MRA, men's rights, activist techniques. You're not about – it's not about playing a game. It's not about putting the zap on a woman's head. It's not about making her feel insecure. It's just about moderating the pace at which you roll out this future talk. If it two or three months you're doing this, two or three months she doesn't feel like she knows you that well. right? One of the st- – we just took a call from somebody who's in an abusive relationship. One of the red flags – of of the abuser that we talk about and that women talk about with their friends are people who hustle you into a premature commitment. Perhaps what's coming across as you're being chivalrous that these women are picking up on is they're getting this conscious or subconscious sense that you're rushing them along into a commitment that they're not ready to make because after 8 or 12 weeks, they don't know you well enough. So You're spooking them by this future fantasy crap. Let yourself have a future with them. Let it unfold. Be Casual, not indifferent to their existence, not cold, not hostile. Don't neg them like the PUAs say. Just go with them. Go with it. Let it happen. But it's not going to happen if you're gaming out the next 50 years together. Game out the next night together, the next day together, maybe what's happening next week. The people begin to make plans for the future with someone when they're dating that are two weeks off, a month off. You know, in a month, this band is coming to town. I got tickets. Would you like to come? That's the kind of shit that should be happening at eight weeks. Not, I could see myself with you forever. That creates obligations and pressures. And some people that, who might have wanted to be with you forever if it had unfolded more slowly and calmly and naturally will bolt. When you say that shit. And they are bolting, so stop fucking saying that shit. Don't play games. Just be easy. Be casual. Not indifferent.
3: Hi, Dan. I am a straight male and just uh, uh, going through a recent breakup. And um,
7: I've been through breakups before.
3: Um, uh, Depending on the type of breakup, um, they can be really hard and painful and suck and um I was wondering if you had any advice on how to best get over those feelings. I find a lot of conflicting stuff online. I know it just takes time and it's hard, but I was wondering if there's anything more scientific, anything more uh leading-edge scientific on
7: maybe some tricks you can do to get over it best or um just, just anything at all. It would be helpful for me and for her. I think we're both suffering
3: and being kind of pathetic right
1: now. And it'd be nice to have some guidance. Thank you. Bananas and toast, or maybe a raw egg whooshed up with some Worcestershire sauce. You know, it just takes time. The cliche applies. There's no science here. It's like when you have a hangover and you start getting advice from friends on the things you should try. And the last thing you tried worked. And what was really happening is by the time you got around to the last thing you tried, the hangover was ending You can try a million different things and eventually the pain will subside and maybe you will credit the last thing you tried with being the cure and it was just the pain had run out by then. It had played out. You're doing the right thing right now. It sounds like the breakup is really recent. You're wallowing. You're being pitiful and pathetic. That is – and I'm sure the science would back me up if anyone bothered to do the science on this. That is a part of the process. You just have to move through that and – Throw yourself into it and wallow. My advice is typically a month, journal, cry, eat ice cream, plague your friends with your problems and your hurt. And then after a month, shut the fuck up, go see a movie, go to the gym, ride your bike somewhere, ask your friends how they're doing instead of just talking about yourself. And pretend that you're feeling better and you will start to feel better. Go through the motions of feeling better and you will magically start to feel better. You will still have your sads. They will still sometimes overwhelm you and that's fine, but eventually you have to stop looking at the scabs and picking at the open wounds. And that means distracting yourself. So have your pathetic wallow and then get the fuck out of the house. Do something, do someone else.
5: Hello, Dan. I'm, a 21-year-old caller from the Midwest, and I'm just wondering for a curious question. How do you keep a penis soft? I know it's tragic, but I have severe jaw problems, and I cannot have a penis in my mouth if it's hard. So, I'm just and wondering how to keep it soft. Um... When when it's a soft penis, I can give really great and fulfilling and enjoyable for me. Like, truly, truly, it's one of my favorite things to do. Give soft blowjobs. But penises have a tendency to get hard when you suck on them. I know, I know. How sad. Do I just need to date 90-year-olds? Any advice on somehow keeping a penis soft so I can suck on it and have all the fulfillment that I really enjoy from sucking
1: on a soft penis. You could suck my penis. It would be soft the whole time. So you could date gay men. You wouldn't have to date only 90 year old men like you threw out there. And there are 9 year old guys out there who can get hard. So watch out. If you start sucking 90 year olds, you might be unpleasantly surprised. Uh, you're not giving someone a blow job. If you're sucking a soft penis and The goal is not to get them off or please them, that guy whose dick you're sucking, uh, because if it was about getting him off, that would necessitate in almost all cases an erection at some point. This is about what he's giving you. You derive pleasure from having a soft penis in your mouth. So this isn't a blow job that you're giving. This is a soft penis in the mouth job that he's giving, giving to you. You enjoy this. You like a soft dick in your mouth. And I think you just have to be honest about that with the guys that you're with. That when your dick is hard, it's for my hand, it's for my twat, it's for my ass maybe if you're into anal. But when your dick is hard, it's not for my mouth because I have this jaw issue. But I also have this really fun kinky wrinkle, this little like sex quirk that I don't know if you're going to enjoy. Like, uh, because these jaw issues, I can't give a blowjob to an erectic, but there's nothing I like more than having a soft dick in my mouth because that turns me on and gets me off. And then after he comes, after he blows a load in your hand and your pussy, in your ass, in your library sofa, wherever he is, then when his dick goes down and that point of it's torture to have anybody touch your dick after you come, when the the sensations subside, during his refractory period, you can safely put his dick in your mouth without causing him discomfort and without causing him to get an erection. And then you can get off on that soft dick action that you enjoy so much, the softy that you enjoy so much but you're going to have to be honest with your partner and you have to roll with it and you have to incorporate it and you're going to have to just lay it out. You have this interesting, fun sex quirk and you can't give him a blow job, but would he please give you a soft job?
8: Hi, Dan, um, 23 year old Connie, Southern California. Um, I've been mostly with girls for the past four years of my life and just started kind of dabbling back with guys again. It's been fun. Um, I've been sleeping with this guy been really great. He always goes down on me and like I come before we even start anything else and it's awesome. And I really want to repay the favor. But it seems like my mouth is kryptonite for his dick. Like I'll be playing with his ball or something and he'll be like really excited and then I go down there and I'm just like kissing and like looking just a little bit and then all of a sudden he's soft and uh, <laughs> I kind of don't know what to do. I don't really want, haven't brought it up to talk to him about it because I don't want to make it like a thing where they can self-conscious and can never stay hard. I just, I don't know. <laughs> can it can help the girl out.
1: Doctor, doctor, it hurts when I go like this. Don't go like that. Dan, Dan, his dick gets soft when I go like this. Don't Go like that. He doesn't like blowjobs for some reason. It would be great if you guys could have a conversation about that. There are guys out there who don't like blowjobs and maybe he hasn't been very forthcoming about that because men are expected to love blowjobs and guys who don't like blowjobs or whose dicks shrink at the blowjob initiation stage may end up feeling self-conscious about that or awkward about that or like there's something wrong with them. That that doesn't work for them and so they have a hard time talking about it. But that that could be it. He doesn't like blowjobs. So stop trying to give him a blowjob. Let him eat your pussy. He obviously likes eating your pussy. Let him eat your pussy. He likes it when you play with his balls. Play with his balls. Presumably he likes it when you guys have intercourse. He likes it when you do other stuff and he's hard. Do those other things and stop trying to do what you know doesn't work for him. That makes him feel uncomfortable. It's also possible that he might not want to talk about this or be ready to talk about it because perhaps he was traumatized in some way. Yes, boys are sexually abused too and can experience sexual trauma too. Maybe he was given blowjobs against his will when he was young or by a terrible person or molested by somebody and just the association is too strong. Like, and he's never going to be able to go there and do this with anybody and that's why he hasn't talked about it yet right? Because there's trauma and he's not ready to share that with you. Either way, whatever it is, doesn't like it because he just doesn't, doesn't like it because of some horrible association that makes it really unpleasant. Your job right now is to stop fucking doing it, right? Do what works. Do what you know turns him on. Stop doing this thing that you've determined does not turn him on. And make sure you have the kind of open lines of communication that when he's ready to talk to you about this, he will talk to you about this.
5: Hi, Dan.
7: This is a 29-year-old male straight. I've never called or thought about calling until today because I am currently passing into Florida on a crazy whim to tell a girl that I love her. I guess, I, I guess I'll give you background. Um, I just had someone move in with me where I live, which is about eight hours north, and as soon as she moved in, she started to go crazy, become really cold, and decided last night that she was just going to go stay somewhere else. So, on a whim, I went to Florida to tell someone who I hadn't seen in five years that I love them. I guess I'm just feeling a little crazy. I'm really scared of the outcome here. But I don't know what kind of advice I'm even asking for. I'm just trying to figure out, am I I crazy? Am I just losing it?
1: Are you crazy? I don't know. You're doing something crazy, but all sane people occasionally do something crazy. I think crazy, not crazy isn't the issue. I think what's going on here is you're at this low point and you're – Making this large dramatic gesture and romantic comedies, movies, films, televisions, they convince us that because they show these things over and over again, these dramatic moments that the lo- grand romantic gesture, even the seemingly crazy grand romantic gesture is a key to success. It will lead you to romantic success. That's how the movies make it look. In reality, to be on the receiving end of one of these grand romantic, desperate dramatic gestures is usually very unpleasant, right? John Cusack showing up under your window and say anything with a boombox and waking your whole family up. Works in the movies. Doesn't usually work in realities. In reality, that isn't typically going to get anybody anywhere except the backseat maybe of a cop car. That you, you feel this need because you took a risk on the person that you just moved in with and it didn't work out. She moved in and realized that you were wrong for her or maybe she's crazy. She moved in and then just went nuts and now is moving out and treating you coldly. Has you thinking about what could have been with this other person and you to work through the angst to distract yourself have allowed the energy, the shame, the – Regret, the self recrimination, the anger. You've allowed all of that to propel you to Florida to tell this person something they probably don't want to hear. And you're, that's fine. You know, sometimes people reach out and connect with a past lover, an ex, and they're both on the same page and neither of them had the courage to say anything to each other and Yahtzee. And it works out. You know, that's one of the things the arrival of Facebook showed us where well, there's lots of people out there who used to be in our lives who aren't anymore, who still want to fuck us. A lot of people learned that when they first got on Facebook, right? Ended a lot of marriages. People reconnected with old flames and ex-boyfriends and girlfriends and looked at their current flame and thought, I need to extinguish this shit and ran off with the old one. Who knows? Maybe she's there. The line that separates you and this crazy act from crazy person Doing a crazy thing is how you reacted, assuming you're already in Florida and you're already on your way there and there's this lag between the call being recorded and the call being broadcast. How you reacted when, you know, odds being what they are, she reacted in horror or she told you that's nice but I'm not interested. How did you react in that moment? Did that further propel you into more crazy acts? Did that send you reeling Or did that likely outcome, were you sane enough to realize that was a likely outcome, end this for you? This little hero's journey across the country in your car to go tell a girl something she may or most likely may not want to hear. If you heard her say, oh oh my god, I'm with somebody now and I'm not interested but it's nice to see you but – which would be a lie at that moment, probably not nice to see you, but uh, and you allowed her to back away from you and you graciously made your exit and then you went and had some pancakes at an IHOP and thought, I need to return to reality and pick the pieces up. If that was your reaction, then you're not crazy. You're a sane-ish person who did a crazy and most likely unwelcome thing. And now you're going to get your shit together. Right, You took all that energy from the angst and the anger and the whatever and the the regret about your recent relationship troubles and you plowed it into this drive. And now you're going to drive the fuck back to where you came from and pick up your pieces and move or get a roommate or whatever you need to do to pay the rent and file this whole episode away as that crazy thing that you, sane person, did once. I'm going to take a break from the calls for a little bit right now. At the top of last week's show, I ranted for a bit about Lady Viagra. There was a headline in the New York Times and everywhere else saying Viagra for women approved. Uh, It's this drug called flabanserin and I have issues with it. And I promised you that we would go get some experts and some women to talk about this drug uh, who are more informed and more qualified to speak to it and the whole process than I am Joining us by phone, Alice Drager is a faculty member at the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Program of Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Her most recent book, which centers on sex politics in science and sometimes the conflicts, is Galileo's Middle Finger, published this year by Penguin Press. She's previously been on the Savage Lovecast to talk about small penises, missing clitorises, and whether it is taboo to have sex. When you're on the rag, or not whether, but why it's taboo to have sex on the rag. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Alice. Thanks, Dan. So this drug, I'm just going to sit back in my chair for a second and let you go off. This drug, what do you (laughs) think? What do you think?
9: Uh, I think the FDA is being incredibly irresponsible or afraid of sex politics. So they approve this drug. Uh, what a terrible name
1: i can't sit back in my chair what a terrible name phlebanserin
9: it is a terrible name they'll give it some sexy name when it goes on the market so people call it women's viagra it's not at all viagra helped you get an erection and sustain an erection this drug is supposed to be treating what's called hypoactive sexual desire disorder or low sexual desire it's supposed to increase your sexual desire which in theory sounds good because People who are in relationships need often to have um, good sexual relationships, and sometimes somebody has a lower libido than somebody else, and often that's the woman in the heterosexual relationship. So in theory, it sounds good. It's where the rubber meets the road that you get a problem. This drug has been found to only really even work in 10 to 12% of women, um, according to a great piece in the Washington Post by Cindy Pearson, who's executive director of the National Women's Health Network, looking at the data. It also has really nasty side effects, potentially. It can actually cause your heart rate to suddenly drop um, for you to pass out. Uh, Studies in mice have actually shown something kind of scary. Um, Here I'm taking uh, from an article that's really well-written by Alan Alan Castles. He's a guy who's looked at how drug companies manipulate markets and convince people that they have diseases. He's co-author of a book called Selling Sickness. And what he points out is the mice data showed, quote, a highly significant dose-related increase in the incidence of mammary tumors in female mice. Oh, my In God. other words, there's some evidence, yeah, there's some evidence in the animal literature that, you know, we might be looking long-term at an increase of breast cancer risk in women. So these are not significant, insignificant side effects for women to be with. There's also an interaction that occurs if you're taking uh, antifungal uh, treatment, which you might do for a vaginal yeast infection, for example. It can cause a severe reaction So these are not insignificant. You're supposed to take this drug every day, and it only helps about 10 to 12% of women. And even of those, it only helps a tiny little bit.
1: How did it get approved?
9: Well, it got approved because of the classic way this works. Uh, Castle's and his co-author, Ray Moynihan, called this astroturfing. And the reason they call it that is because we usually think of grassroots patient movements. Astroturfing is when a drug company comes in and basically pays people to be patients. And mm-hmm. just say, I need this drug. I have to have this drug. So they did that. They got these women to go to the FDA and scream and yell about sexism and to claim that men have all these drugs available to them and women don't. And the FDA was being sexist and they had to approve this drug. That's just crazy. That's just, I, I really want to break in.
1: That's just crazy. Men have all these drugs. And it's true. We have Cialis. We have Viagra. So give us one that's dangerous and doesn't work and then we've even the score. <laughs> then everything's fair now.
9: And that's exactly the point Cindy Pearson made in the Washington Post. She says, you know, what we don't need is people screaming sexism and then giving us dangerous drugs and telling us that we have low sexual desire and that we need to take this drug. You know, what we know is that women can have low sexual desire for lots of different reasons and things like not sleeping well, things like having problems with their partner, um, things like, you know, just having various kinds of issues like taking hormonal birth control can reduce your libido. So there's lots of things that can be occurring for a woman. And the idea that we're supposed to now just go out and pop a pill every day that might increase all of these risks and give us a tiny little benefit level is just kind of crazy. So what The FDA, by the way, didn't approve it at the level of saying, just slap a label on it and sell it. In fact, none of the people voting from the FDA said to do that. There was actually, um, the way the vote went, six people on the committee said, don't approve it at all. And the rest of the people on the committee said... You can approve it, but only if certain risk management options beyond labeling are implemented. In other words, there's going to have to be risk management beyond just caveat emptor. The woman should handle it herself. So that's going to be hopefully significant, but still, I don't think she would approved.
1: What do we do now? Like, one of the things that I saw in the New York Times piece was 18 months from now, they can begin to advertise it, that they have to wait 18 months. Grace period before they can begin running those commercials. Ask your doctor if phlebanzerin ah. or wet wipes or whatever they end up calling it. it is right for you. What do we do now? How do we push back against this besides just talking about it and making sure women know that it's dangerous?
9: You know, maybe what we should do is require every woman who wants to do the to subscribe to the Savage Love Cast <laughs> and also get a sex therapist. <laughs> So it's really important for a woman to figure out if she has so-called low sexual desire, why that's happening. For some women, for example, they have low sexual desire because they have genital pain. And if that's the case, popping this pill is not a good idea. What you should do is what Dr. Jen Gunter has recommended. She's somebody who deals with genital pain in women. She's a gynecologist in the Bay Area. And that's to work with somebody who's a specialist in that area. If you're dealing with issues of um, not sleeping enough, which is common, especially if you have kids, as you know, Dan, Mm -hmm. then there are ways to try to deal with that issue. But basically, a good thing to start with is primary care and then to move on to a sex therapist because sex therapists are able to help people hone in exactly on what's going on for them in terms of their relationships, in terms of their relation to their own bodies and begin to really address the underlying issue rather than take this pill for whom only 10 to 12% will even benefit and it gives you a tiny benefit and there's all these risks.
1: And for we some, should talk
9: about, by the way, we should, we should point out that when they say that this drug is effective, it's not that it gives you um, an orgasm. It's not that it gives you, you know, a phenomenal sexual experience. It's not that it makes you significantly more horny. The way they defined this drug as being effective is to say that it gives you a more incidence of satisfying sexual experiences. And they defined that as simply having intercourse, having oral sex masturbating or having your partner genitally stimulated. That's how they're defining sexually satisfying. They didn't even ask you, were you sexually satisfied? They just say, if you had intercourse one more time a month, that counted as an increase. So it didn't even increase that much over placebo. What a lot of people have said is give women the placebo that had almost the same effect as giving them this drug.
1: I'm blown away. The other thing that's like to add to the list of things that can impact low sexual desire is boredom. And there are lots of women who have been diagnosed with hypoactive sexual desire disorder, struggling in couples counseling and therapy to try to fix things with their spouse. And they're just not interested in sex and their sexlessness or or no desire destroys the relationship. They get out of the relationship and suddenly they're fucking horny because they were just bored or done with their partner and they couldn't – Say that or or there, we weren't allowed to just acknowledge that that's a thing that happens, that even women can get bored in a long-term relationship with the sex on I offer? We know that. One of the things we know from studies
9: is that introduction of a new partner increases women's libido. That's not feasible for everybody. Not everybody in every relationship can introduce a new partner, but you're absolutely right that boredom is a huge cause of women having a drop in libido. And a potentially dangerous um, drug isn't
1: going to change that. Like a drug that makes you slightly more horny isn't going to make you slightly more horny for someone you don't want to have sex with anyway. So if boredom no, is the we problem. Should, we should
9: point out that the, the this drug increased the number of so-called satisfying sexual experiences by eight per year. And so you can think about if you're in a relationship that's suffering from lack of sex, is having sex eight more times a year really going to radically change that relationship? I doubt it in most cases. And you're right. you got to do something else. You're going to have to introduce something else into the relationship if what you're going to do is try to revive the sexual spark.
1: Alice Dreger, faculty member of the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Program at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Her new book, Galileo's Middle Finger, out now. Pick it up. Alice, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Thanks, Dan. The conversation about flubanserin and even the score and the FDA approval of the new quote-unquote Lady Viagra continues. Liz Kanner is an award-winning filmmaker who spent nine years documenting the pharmaceutical industry and their race to develop a female quote-unquote Viagra. Her film is called Orgasm, Inc., and it's available on Netflix and the Sundance Club. And Liz joins us by phone. Hey, Liz, thank you so much.
0: Oh, it's a thrill to be on your show. I'm a big fan.
1: So you've tracked the development of these drugs, these Lady Viagras, and you were actually at the hearing that where the FDA approved this drug, and you spoke at that hearing. Can you tell us about it?
0: Sure. Um, for, for Orgasm Inc., I documented the other two FDA hearings that um, were for these sorts of drugs, and the last hearing that I filmed was actually for Um And so this was the second hearing that I attended for this drug, and it was nothing like the other two. Those were respectful hearings. They were hearings where you felt like real scientific knowledge was being valued. At this hearing during the public comments section, it was like being at a football game. People were yelling. They were clapping. They were cheering. Um, and when I got up to present um, my thoughts on this, and I took copious notes, and I've been studying this for a long time, um, and I just wanted to sort of review the risks and the and the scientific evidence that it doesn't really work very well. And in fact, in past studies, they did studies in the EU and they found no uh, clinical significance. And this came out in the first hearing that I attended. But anyway, just to sort of go through, you know, all the sorts of things that I wanted to say to the panel, and I got hissed at as if this was some sort of football game. Um, and and so it's very unusual, I think, for an FDA hearing to to have that sort of attitude
1: at it. Who's on this panel that you can just stack the room with partisans and people being paid off by the pharmaceutical industry or maybe not paid off, people paid, just pharmaceutical industry fans and game the refs like that that they will reverse themselves cuz the 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 second uh, here the first hearing about Flabanserin that you attended the FDA rejected the drug, didn't approve it, and then they have another hearing, somebody stacks the room with cheering, shouting, stomping Partisans and the FDA reverses itself. It's really that easy to game the FDA.
0: You know, it's very interesting. This was really like emotional blackmail. There were women in the public comment section that had mostly been. Brought there by the the pharmaceutical industry, sprout. Um, they paid for them through something called the Even the Score campaign, which was a an organizing kind of campaign, a lobbying campaign. And they got up there and they they presented their very sad stories. I have to say about their low desire, and I have sympathy for them. Um, but the 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 reality is that the drug doesn't really work, so that's another story. But the the panel itself is composed of medical experts, of doctors, of therapists. Um, And I think what had happened was even the SCORE campaign um, misrepresented the information. They said that there's 26 drugs for men available that will help with sexual dysfunction and there's nothing for women. Well, the reality is there's eight drugs for men and there's two for women. Um, so this whole idea that this is like the first pink Viagra and that women have been, you know, left on the sidelines and this is sexism at the FDA is completely not true. But they went around saying this and they hired a big feminist organizer to get all these nonprofit organizations like um, NOW to join on. Um, and so they wait, went to the hearing... wait,
1: wait. NOW is in bed with even the score to push... This dangerous, ineffective drug on women?
0: hmm Yeah, it was really a very sad day, I have to say.
1: That is so embarrassing for the National Organization for Women. So uh, yeah. embarrassing.
0: It was shocking. The president, Terry O'Neill, came and spoke and said that her members think a drug like this should be approved. I don't think she polled all of them. And if they knew the side effects, they may not actually feel that way. But, you know, it was, it was one of those moments where I think that the, the rhetoric um, overrode the truth and, and the sort of the deceptive uh, approach. And, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of journalists about this, and people have covered the pharmaceutical industry, and we've really never seen a lobbying campaign like this before. You know, usually the drug industry... Does engage in something called astroturfing where they will give money to a nonprofit to start educating about the disease and frame the disease in a certain way so it seems like their drug is the only solution. This was a completely different thing. This was like a political campaign, you know, where there was going to be winners and losers, you know, and that, and they made it seem like this was something that women had to have, that if we didn't have it, it's proved that the FDA was this highly sexist organization.
1: The losers are going to be women who take this drug and expect it to have any sort of impact on them when it doesn't work for almost all the women who've taken it. And, and the health risk, the, the, the low blood pressure, the, um, the fainting, the, the other unknowns. I'm, I'm flabbergasted by it. I'm just flabbergasted. That, that this thing got, got approved. I didn't know about the National Organization for Women Connection. That appalls me. But zooming out, Orgasm Inc focuses on the pharmaceutical industry, big picture, not just Sprout Pharmaceutical or whichever company it was that backed this drug. I think it was Sprout. And, and the efforts to come up with a Lady Viagra. What do people need to know and, and bear in mind as they begin to hear about these efforts, as they hear about these drugs? What, do, what, what will they learn watching your film?
0: Well, I think you know what basically happened was in the in the late 90s when Viagra was approved, it was a huge blockbuster. And the pharmaceutical industry said, well, the women will be an even bigger market. So let's start testing these drugs on them. But the problem was there wasn't a clearly defined disease for women. Erectile dysfunction is pretty clear. You know, when you give someone a vasodilator, they get more engorgement and they get an erection mm-hmm. for, for women, even when they started and, and Pfizer did test the Viagra on women, hoping that that would bring about um, the same sort of effect. And they found that women did get more engorged and they got more lubricated, but like, do we even notice? No. So like it didn't, it didn't help with with pleasure. For, for most of the women on it. So they did, they stopped their studies, basically. And that happened with the other drug companies. The one that I had worked for had a similar kind of drug. And so then they moved to testosterone. That was the next thing that they tried to sort of um, develop. And that also didn't seem to prove have much efficacy. And I think the problem is that the reality of, of the situation for most women is that they don't actually have a medical condition that's causing their sexual problem. There's a few you know diseases where you may have as a side effect sexual issues um things like diabetes or if you've had a radical hysterectomy but for the majority of women their sexual problems probably come from things like stress due to overwork um past sexual abuse communication problems relationship issues boredom um the, boredom yeah definitely boredom you know and and the thing about this low desire drug which is which is disturbing to me on some level is that it's not like these women can't have sex. Um, and, you know, as we, as we grow older, as we're in long-term relationships, often our libido does change, and it goes up and down with our menstrual cycle. But the reality is that if women, you know, feel that they're not in the mood, you kind of think of it like an ice cream sundae. If you're not hungry and you have a sundae placed in front of you and you take a bite, You know, it tastes good, and you might eat more. So it's not like we can't enjoy sex. And if we're not in the mood, you know, sometimes there's ways to relax so you get more in the mood. I mean, I said at the FDA hearing, and this is true, because the drug showed such little efficacy that having a glass of wine or two a month would probably give you just as many sexual, you know, satisfying sexual experiences as this drug, and you wouldn't risk, you know, in some cases, Possible death, because the number of car accidents on this drug tripled over placebo. Um, there were two and a half times more accidents. Um, part of the problem is that it makes people f- um, faint at any moment. So I think, you know, that's, that's an issue. And, and you wouldn't be able to ever drink again if you were on this drug, basically, you know, while you're on it.
1: This drug just sounds like like a disaster.
0: It's a disaster. It's a total disaster. But, oh, but in terms of getting back to what you were saying, what I discovered in my film was that the pharmaceutical industry had funded the meetings where the disease female sexual dysfunction was basically defined. And it's like a catch-all disease. And, and the hypoactive sexual desire disorder is a subcategory that's not even recognized anymore in the DSM. Um, it's, it's not considered um, as severe as it used to be, and they don't even fully recognize it medically. So, you know, it's, it, it's sort of an outdated in some ways,
1: Orgasm Inc. is the film. It's available on Netflix and at the Sundance Doc Club. Liz Kanner, thank you so much. Are you going to do an update to your film? Or are you going to do an epilogue?
0: Well, <laughs> that's a good question. I'll have to think about it. It's a great idea. Um, if this drug gets approved, I may have to, um, just because I would like to warn women about the, the potential risk of taking it.
1: Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. We really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey Dan, I'm a 29
8: year old lesbian in Los Angeles. I'm seeking some guidance with what I'm finding is becoming an uncomfortable situation. There's a man that works at the grocery store that I frequent, and I think he is slightly developmentally disabled, and he's taken a liking to me. He has asked me out a couple of times, asked for my phone number, told me, you know, he'd like to get to know me more, would I like to get to to know him more, and, you know, kind of try to tell him no in a delicate way, that I'm not interested, recently got out of a long relationship, and I'm not ready to start dating again, um, all of which is the truth, but he's persisting and getting more persistent. I don't feel like I should have to out myself to him to tell him that I don't want to date him, but at the same time, I feel like... It's gotten maybe I've let it go a little too far at this point, and um, I risk really hurting him and making it very awkward if I don't just tell him that truth.
0: It's really not my
8: preferred way of doing it. I'd like to just tell him that I'm not interested and I really appreciate his interest, but don't want that kind of relationship with him. I'm curious if you think really the best thing to do is just to tell him, I'm not interested in Ben, and Ben leave it at that and that way he won't be hurt that it's him personally um, or if you do think it's okay for me to do it without outing
1: myself. You're going to have to shoot him down. You're going to have to be really direct. Not the white lie, I just got out of a relationship. I'm not really looking right now. Because what that says is live in hope. What that says is ask again later. I might be, I'm not ready right now because I'm hurting, but maybe in Two months or three months? That's what he hears when you say – a smart guy, uh, you know, a, a guy with a clue perhaps – And and <laughs> there are developmentally disabled people out there who are smart and who have clues and there are people who do not have developmental disabilities who are idiots on this subject. But a guy who can put two and two together will realize when you say you just got a relationship, you're not looking right now, what you mean is not you, not never. Because if the right person materialized in front of you 11 seconds after your last relationship ended, you would go for it. We all would. You are never going to go out with him. You need to say that to him. You need to say to him, you have to stop asking me for my phone number. You're making me feel uncomfortable in this store. I'm not interested in dating you. You seem like a nice person, but this has to stop now. Or I'm going to speak to your manager. And you might want to speak to his manager anyway. And you can approach his manager in a friendly way and say – it's awesome that this store works with and employs developmentally disabled people. I'm having this problem, right? And just lay it out there. Say if you feel this way, and I think you do, I don't want this person fired. But you don't want somebody here who's making your female customers feel uncomfortable being in the store. So you need to speak to him about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. it is inappropriate and potentially a fireable offense to ask customers for their phone numbers repeatedly after they've attempted to deflect. But you and all women everywhere and all men everywhere and all gay guys everywhere and straight guys everywhere, when you're not interested in somebody and you use the white lie once and it didn't work, then you've got to tell the fucking truth. If you are never, ever going to be interested in this person, say so. We don't say that because we don't want to hurt their feelings. And we don't say that even when that other person is hurting our feelings. When they're making you feel uncomfortable and unsafe in the grocery store when you're just trying to buy an onion, they are hurting your feelings. And yet you, because you have a higher emotional IQ than he does potentially, you or someone in your circumstance, you don't just lay it out because you don't want them to feel uncomfortable as they make you feel uncomfortable. You have to make them feel uncomfortable when the white lie didn't work.
10: Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female. I'm living in the South. I got married about a year ago to a really wonderful man, Um, and my question actually pertains mostly to his family. Um, My husband has bipolar disorder. Um, He has this really serious mental illness, and for about the past year, things have been really hard because for a lot of it, he was off of his medication and When that happens, life turns into a little bit of a nightmare. But he's back on his meds and trying his best to get better. He's got um, a great therapist and all that good stuff. My question about his family, they live about an hour away from us, and they're really wonderful people. When we're with them, we have a great time. But ever since my husband and I have been together, he had said things to me about how he really felt like his parents liked his siblings more than him and things like that, that at first I didn't quite believe to be true because nobody wants to believe that um, about their partner's parents. But um, in the past year or so, it's really become clear to me that that seems to be true, that it's in subtle ways, but I think it's really damaging. And so um, on top of not really feeling very much emotional support from his family in general, there's this favoritism going on. That's, that's really hard, and um, my husband is sort of constantly overlooked. My question is sort of how to move forward with this family. Um, we don't want to write them off. In a lot of ways, they're really great, but our marriage is a different kind of marriage because one of us has a serious mental illness, and um, it's hard enough as it is, but without family support, it's even harder. Um, any thoughts that you have would be wonderful.
1: You don't say how long you've been married, but presumably not that long. Right, And you've been his wife for a lot less time than they've been his parents and siblings. Seems to me that if he has a serious mental illness, and he does, bipolar disorder, and he's gone on and off his meds just in the time that you've known him, and he's on his meds now and he's seeing a therapist and he's getting healthy and that's great, you can't know what he may have put his family of origin through. Before you came on the scene and that roller coaster of his mental illness may be responsible for this disconnect or this seeming favoritism that his parents show his other siblings. It may be that they just have an easier time interacting with his siblings because they don't have a serious mental illness and haven't had a serious mental illness. And so their relationship isn't – hasn't been damaged by mental illness, not by your husband, but by mental illness. And so they just have an easier, breezier time of relating with his siblings and that is manifest in in the way they interact with them. And so I would ask you when you see this quote-unquote favoritism and you don't cite any examples of what that favoritism is, is it malicious or is it just a manifestation of that easier, less fraught – less damaged by mental illness relationship that they're able to have with their other kids. And maybe they're not even conscious of this favoritism that they're showing their other kids. Maybe the relationship is just easier. I think that some compassion is in order here. I think that you should approach perhaps as parents alone, very compassionately, Not to say you're treating my husband, your son differently than his siblings and that's pissing us off and it's unfair and whatever, but to approach them and say, this is a dynamic that I've noticed and I want to understand where it comes from. And you know, I want us all to be conscious of it because he picks up on it and it's not helpful. As I struggle now as his spouse and his primary caregiver, caretaker, to help him stay on his meds and stay healthy and keep him in this track. This dynamic is, you know, troubling and not helpful. And maybe his parents aren't aware of the dynamic and you should invite them to share their stories of what they went through. And who knows, maybe they're going to unload on you about the hell he put them through for which they deserve perhaps some not license to be shitty to him and nice to the other kids, but some understanding and compassion as they then work on, correcting for that if they were not conscious of it if it is malicious they just don't like him if they are punishing him for having had for having a mental illness and they're being cruel then you are his family now you two together are his family and you should pull away from them if it is malicious if it is thoughtless if it is not malicious if it is just a groove a, a relationship dynamic established over many many years as this mental illness manifested itself and impacted all of their lives and there is no fix or working around it there's just dealing with it and they're good and lovely people generally and they are able to give some help and support then lean on them for that help and support take what they can give and have some compassion perhaps an understanding for their inability to give as much or to give as easily to him as they give to their other kids.
3: Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth quick question about coming out. So I am 20 years old from the East coast and I've been recently started the process of coming out. This is after many years of, of self doubt and self hatred because of my religion of which I have been volunteering at a church of my religion for going on six years now. And uh, the church is super, super against gays, and it's just, they don't say that they're against gays, but you can tell by their preaching where they really stand. This also included me going and volunteering over the summer at Mission in a third world country, of which when I officially come out, I can't volunteer there anymore because it says on their application, questions about homosexuality and homosexual relations, and I just know that they wouldn't accept me. So, I started to come out to uh, my first friend on December seventh of this past year, and uh, that was kind of the first time I ever came out to myself as well and um it was it was a really good time of self discovery and talking to a friend about it in an open open conversation and it was really really helpful to me. but the problem was I was offered a job at the church on staff, and I took it. With the mission in the third world country and this church, it was my last dish, dish ever to turn straight. Shockingly, it didn't work, and um, I'm, I'm still gay. That's who I am, part of who I am, and I started to come out to more people then, even after I took the job at the church. Um, I ended up telling 25 now close friends, and they are all, all of them are super accepting, and it's really cool to see that. And then I told my parents, and... They did not like it. My mom didn't talk to me for a couple of days. My dad took a while to talk to me. But long story short, I went to therapy for it under my own okay. And um, they ended up <laughs> not being a conversion therapist. Thanks heavens. Uh, but it was kind of just a way for me to say, okay, this is who I am for sure. But the problem now is the fact that I have to tell my church or I have to quit my church if I want to be me. So there's three options I have. I can, one, quit under the ideas of education I'm transferring to a bigger campus of the college I'm going to, so I can tell them that I'm quitting because of my education. Or two, I can tell them that I'm quitting because I'm gay, which is the biggest reasons of the reason I want to quit. Or I can do number three, I can tell them that I'm gay and see how they react. I'm not sure what the best option is, but I know I cannot stay there.
1: Good for you, coming out, coming out to your parents, staying strong. Uh, I want to reiterate my advice for people who are coming out to families that are hostile, uh, or or that threaten them with rejection. The trick is to make them fear your rejection. Don't fear their rejection. Make them fear your rejection. Your relationship with them is on the line, and their good behavior, as they struggle towards acceptance, you know, you don't they don't have to become. God forbid Sharon Glass in the American Queerest Folk in 10 minutes. But so long as they're progressing and they're thinking through this stuff and moving toward acceptance and coming closer to acceptance, hang in there. But if they're being assholes, if the tantrum never stops, get the fuck away from them and tell them that you're not going to see them or have anything to do with them until they are over this, right? You, that's what you should do with your parents. Your presence in the lives of your parents That is your only leverage over your parents as an adult child. Okay? Ask what to do about your church. Fuck your church. You're leaving your church. Uh, It is important that churches know that they lose members, congregants, potential good employees as they cling to this horrifying homophobia. Right? And transphobia and the rest of it. So you say to your church, hey, look, uh, love that Jesus dude, if you're still besotted with the Jesus dude. Love the Jesus dude, but you know what? I'm gay and you don't like that any more than I like your anti-gay shit. So this is over and I'm out of here. But I just wanted you to know that I think your homophobia and the homophobia that you guys endorse and that you rationalize with this religious bullshit is garbage And I'm gone. And so what? Why not tell them? What if they can't drag you before a church court and have you burned at the stake in front of the church as they might wish to? As three or four hundred years they would have? You are free. Tell them the truth. Just like you told your parents the truth. And get the fuck out.
3: Hi, Dan. This is a comment for the scientist from episode 450. I have to agree with your tech savvy at risk youth who said that he should just date someone in the STEM field. I'm a scientist myself, and I ended up marrying someone in the sciences, and it's great. Uh, I also have to say, you guys seem pretty condescending in your impressions of a scientist robot. Dan, I know you have plenty of scientists on your show all the time. You know that that's not what they're like. The Aspergery uh, reputation that scientists have doesn't do us any favors, and I thought you guys would have been a bit more sensitive to that.
11: Hi, I'm calling with a comment about the scientist who found that he was being overly skeptical in social situations, and I thought that you were just kind of making fun of him for being overly arrogant, but it's a real issue in that science has a much lower threshold for bullshit uh, than in in a socially acceptable. I'm a biochemist, and I I deal with the same thing. My advice for him would be to adopt some new habits in both his conversations with scientists and non-scientists, which will help him especially with the latter. Uh, the first is to be in gener- very generous in his conversations, give people the benefit of the doubt, and listen to what they intended as opposed to what they literally said. So if somebody says that they like the energy of a room, they're not talking about thermodynamics. They're talking about their intuitions, and that's legitimate. Uh, you should be pragmatic in that if something he says is going to hurt somebody, you should keep that in mind, and maybe it's not as important to point out every little thing if he's going to hurt someone that he cares about. Another interesting thing is that he might be a little bit insecure. Uh, One of the interesting things about grad school that I've certainly encountered is that even though you're in this elite, prestigious program, uh, within the bubble of that program, you tend to be made to feel very inadequate and you have to prove yourself. So it's something to be aware of in other circles. I agree with you that he should date maybe people in other STEM fields, but there aren't a lot of women in the physical sciences uh, so, I would recommend that he hang out in the life sciences as much as possible uh, i 'm a biologist and there 's almost a majority of women in many places and that 's some place where he can meet people and maybe use them as a gauge uh, if they find him to be too arrogant there then maybe it 's him uh, He could also hang out at skeptic societies they appreciate science and appreciate that way of thinking uh, as well as uh you know if he wants to to online dating, hang out on OkCupid, and use a lot of those skeptic scientist buzzwords so that you can attract the right people.
12: Advice for the young scientist in episode 450. One, refine your objective function for potential matches. You may want to include more traits such as interest in debate into your st- screening algorithm. Two, your PhD likely taught you about the precision of language, and not everyone has had this privilege, so you must be considerate. Give people a pass on the first date and reassure yourself that they are probably nervous just like you, and thus only clarify repeated misuses of a word. Three, when questioning someone's logic or word choice, ask open-ended questions, learn more about them, how they think, and experiences that have influenced their perspectives. Four, when you are on the tail of any bell curve and looking for a similar mate, the product of two small numbers is a small number. So it takes a lot of first dates to be successful. Finally, dating is an ongoing hypothesis test. Continue to test yours.
1: And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, 206-201-2720. The Hump Tour, Hump being the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn film festival, my porn film festival, is coming to Brooklyn, New York, Thursday, June 25th at the Wife Hotel, one night only. Go to HumpTour.com for information about tickets. And also at HumpTour.com, you can find information about submitting a film to Hump. Just click on. On Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Alice Dreger on Twitter at Alice Dreger. Follow Liz Canner on Twitter at Orgasm underscore Inc. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Cartoonian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast Next week,